Well, thank you all. Thank you, worship team. That was, that was moving. That was moving. Um, well, for those of you who don't know me, my name is Jason Lorenz. Um, I have the privilege of, I uh, was given the invitation by Pastor Kirk and Pastors David and Matt to uh, share with you all this morning. Um, and so, for those of you who don't know me, um, I've been the chaplain and Bible teacher at Covenant Christian Academy for the last 12 years. Uh, <laughs> um, and... Uh, there's some people here who are from there. Uh, and, um, and my family and I have been uh, a part of your family for the last couple of years. And my wife, Robin, was just up here leading music a few moments ago. And so uh, thank you for uh, inviting me up. And as we dive in, today is the fourth and final week in our sermon series, Work as Worship. Three weeks ago, Pastor Kirk taught us about God's good design for our work. That we should not see work and worship as separate ideas or as competing arenas of life, but instead we should see our work as a gift from God through which we can glorify God and bring the grace and goodness of God to a world in desperate need of God. Two weeks ago, Pastor Matt helped us zoom in on a particular way that work is worship. He taught us that leadership in the workplace is all about influence and that Christians who lead well in their work, whether in the office or on the field, at home or online, that they will lead with a Christ-like influence that is built upon Christ-like character and expressed in Christ-like self-sacrifice. And then last week, Pastor Kirk invited us to consider the why of our work. Too often our ambition for our work is too small because our vision of God is too small. But when we reorient our eyes to the bigness of God's love and goodness in and over all things, it is then that we can ask him for the, to open the eyes of our hearts and our minds to see how our work can participate in his big vision to make everything in this world new. So all of that leads to this topic for today. Because if work is such a good gift from God, and if work can have such a positive influence on my neighbors, and if work is such a meaningful way to participate in the mission of God in this world, then that makes work a leading candidate in my heart to replace God as what I worship. Former Manhattan pastor and author Tim Keller, who has written one of the best books that you can read on idolatry, it's called Counterfeit Gods, says this, we think of idols as bad things, but that is almost never the case. The greater the good, the more likely we are to expect that it can satisfy our deepest needs and hopes. Anything can serve as a counterfeit God, especially the very best things in life. This morning, we're going to consider one of the best things in life, God's gift of work, and we're going to consider how it can become an idol that we worship instead of him. Or to put the topic in a question, we might ask it this way, do I worship God through my work, or do I worship work as my God? We're going to consider this in three movements this morning. First, we're going to think about what idols are and why we make them. Secondly, we'll consider together how we are prone to make an idol of our work. And thirdly, 
we'll consider how the Lord equips us to resist the temptation to make an idol of our work and invites us to find joy and peace and rest in him. So once again, the work, or excuse me, the question that we're asking ourselves this morning is, do I worship God through my work or do I worship work as my God? Would you please bow your heads? Let's, let's pray together. Heavenly Father, I'm so humbled that over this past week, you've been speaking to me about this. And so Lord, I stand here knowing that it's your word that you want to speak. And so Lord, I ask that you would help any words of mine that are not helpful to fall to the ground and bear no fruit. But Lord, we ask that all you mean to say to each of us, we will be able to listen and hear and obey with hope and joy, knowing that you are our good God. Thank you, God, for this time. In Jesus' name, amen. So first, as we consider how our work might become an idol, we need to ask, what is an idol? And the Apostle Paul can help us here from the first chapter of the book of Romans, verses 18 through 25. This morning, we're going to be reading from the English Standard Version, and so the words will be on the screen. If you'd like to follow along in the Bible that's in the seat where you are, that's fine. Um, But just know that the words might be a touch different as we read through these verses together. And so this is Romans chapter 1, verses 18 through 25. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. And so they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things." Therefore, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they had exchanged the truth about God for a lie, and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. In these verses, the Apostle Paul offers several phrases that help us define idolatry. Idolatry is when we suppress the truth. Idolatry occurs when we exchange the glory of the immortal God for images of mortal or created things. And idolatry is when we exchange the truth about God for a lie. The Apostle Paul summarizes at the end of verse 25 when he writes, they worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator. So an idol is any created thing that we worship instead of God, any created thing that takes God's rightful place in my life. So if that's what idolatry is, then why do I fall into it? What convinces me to worship the created instead of the creator, the gift instead of the giver? And in the realm of work, how can my work become what I worship instead of how I worship? When I was young, I collected, well, not just when I was young, I collect them now too. I I collected baseball cards. So this is like a gold Chipper Jones and like a really cool foil Ronald Acuna Jr. Anyway, my kids, my kids collect Pokemon cards. So they have the Pokemon cards as well. And what I learned both then and now is when I was trying to be a good collector, 
is that if I was going to build and better my collection, I did it through trading. I remember getting in a very heated discussion with one of my buddies in fourth grade about how I wasn't about to let my top's finest refractor Michael Jordan leave my hands unless he paid me a king's ransom. I also remember purchasing a monthly subscription, I was 10, to Beckett Magazine, which was the authority on how valuable each card in circulation was. I wanted to know how much my cards were worth, number one, because I wanted to take stock of my hoard. But number two, because I wanted to make sure I didn't get taken advantage of by one of my scheming friends. A good trade, a good trade would be one where we agreed that we both got what we wanted, or one where I came out on top. The need to make good trades, however, is actually present in every area of our human life, and perhaps most notably in our work. Human economics is an economics of exchange. We buy, we sell, we barter. The work that we do, we offer for a price. When we go and we consume or we purchase, we acquire at a price. I would guess that many of us even pride ourselves on being the ones who can find the best deal. Maybe for yourself, maybe for your clients, maybe for your family. For me, this happens in the grocery store because my mother taught me from a very early age, you don't just look at the item price, you look at the unit price. <laughs> right? We humans, we are always trying to make good trades. But, and you know, sometimes we get taken for a ride, fleeced bamboozled. Sometimes, like the Detroit Lions or the New York Jets in the NFL draft, we lose any sense of wisdom or frugality, and we overpay for a good that will almost certainly underdeliver. <laughs> but back to Romans 1, just for a moment, the Apostle Paul provides us with a different vocabulary. He provides us with a vocabulary of idol-making if we pay attention when he says, claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man. And then later in verse 25, he allows them to dishonor their bodies among them because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. So notice how Paul repeats himself, they exchanged, they exchanged. The Bible defines idol-making as making bad trades, as making foolish exchanges. We see this in Eden, in Genesis chapter 3, when Adam and Eve exchanged the word of God for the word of a snake. They exchange an eternity with the God who made all things good for one piece of fruit that momentarily looked good. That's a bad trade. We see this at the base of Mount Sinai in Exodus 32, when the people of Israel exchanged the worship of God for the worship of a little cow idol. When they exchanged the God who delivered them from 400 years of slavery for a metal idol that could not see them, could not hear them, could not know them, and could not act on their behalf. That's a bad trade. One of sin's most insidious effects upon us is that it makes us nearsighted. 
Adam and Eve lost sight of the God who walked with them in the garden because of a piece of fruit that was staring them in the face. Israel loses sight of the God who descends upon the top of Mount Sinai in a glorious thundercloud because of a little golden idol of their own making. Because of our sin, our struggle, we struggle to focus our eyes on the greater glory of our creator when the lesser glory of created things is right in front of us. And so as C.S. Lewis writes in his essay, The Weight of Glory, we are half-hearted creatures, fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered to us, like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. So if that's what an idol is, and if that's why we make idols, we make bad trades, then how does this appear in our work? What bad trades are you and I prone to make? Well, the Apostle Paul leads us to an answer yet again when he says that they exchanged the truth about God for a lie. So what truths about God am I exchanging for lies in my work? I think there's three that we can name. First, we exchange the truth that God is our provider for the lie that our work can give us security. Second, we exchange the truth that God is our father for the lie that God can give us identity. And third, we exchange the truth that God is our creator for the lie that God can give us ultimate purpose. Let's take each of these in turn. First, we exchange the truth that God is our provider for the lie that our work is our security. Well, why do we make this trade? We know that God owns the cattle on a thousand hills. We know that all things are from him and to him and through him. We know that he is able to provide at a moment's notice. And we know that he holds all things together. And so what convinces us to believe this lie? Well, the most believable lies are wrapped in truth. Just like when I try to get my dog to eat his heartworm medicine that he hates, I wrap it in a piece of food. And then he eats it. He swallows it. One of the reasons why work is such a good gift from God is that our work is the primary way that God provides for us. Our food, our shelter, even our ability to be generous, those things usually come from God through our work that he gives us to do. But we make idols of the best created things. And so when we see that God provides through our work, our sinful nearsightedness causes us to replace the giver with the gift and to believe that work and not God will provide us with security for our present and our future. Now, this manifests in some different ways. For some of us, we trust what we can save. Like I was hoarding my baseball cards. As long as I have enough stored away, I will be able to live the life I want and weather any storm. But what happens when the stock market, the stock market takes a turn? What happens in 2008? What happens during a period of intense inflation and looming recession? What happens when a career suddenly comes to a halt or sickness unexpectedly arises? What then? Where do I go? 
For others, we pour everything into making a little bit more and then a little bit more and then a little bit more and a little bit more. We hustle and grind through the long hours and side hustles that we keep with the hope that someday we will have done enough and we will have earned enough to not have to work anymore. Like Sisyphus, we work toward the day when we will finally have pushed that rock all the way up to the top of the mountain. But what we don't realize is that as we allow work to fill all the nooks and the crannies and the crevices of our life, all the margins filled with work, work is not providing for our security. Work is securing us as its slave. When I trust my work to provide my security, I no longer have my work. My work has me. Secondly, we can foolishly exchange the truth that God is our Father with the lie that our work can be or provide our identity. Well, why do I believe this lie? I know that the Lord in whom there is no shatter or turning has said, you are a child holy and dearly loved. I know that because of the blood of Jesus, I am covered, my sins have been forgiven, I've been freed and set free, and I'm clothed in robes of righteousness, no longer ashes, but it's a garment of praise that I wear. And so why do I Why do I believe this lie? I think it's because this is a lie that you and I, from a very early age, are taught to believe is true. From very early on, we get defined by our achievements, and then we learn to self-define in the same way. We adopt identity markers like, I'm the straight-A student, I'm the three-sport athlete, I'm the dumb kid, or I'm not sure who I am because I'm not very good at stuff. And so in whatever we do as we grow older, the habit has already been set. And so what do we do as we get older? We say, look at these numbers, I'm the best salesman in the company. Or look at those kids over there, I'm such a good parent. Or, right? Look at all these followers. I'm so popular. A French philosopher from many centuries ago said of himself, I think, therefore I am. I think for many of us today, we have to rephrase that just slightly. I work, therefore I am. But what happens when I allow my achievements to define my identity and I haven't been achieving much? What happens when the boss doesn't like my presentation, when my sales numbers drop, or when I get a call from school and I find out that my kid's a bully? I've been trusting my work as an indicator of my value as a person, and now what is it saying about me? When when I trust my work to be my identity, I end up crushed under the pressure of self-definition. Thirdly, we foolishly exchange the truth that God is our creator for the lie that our work can give us ultimate purpose. Why do I believe this lie? Because I know from Genesis chapter 1 that I'm made in the image of God, and I'm made in the image of God to have dominion over all that God has made. I'm made to rule on earth as he rules all things. I'm made according to Ephesians chapter 2 with good works he's laid in front of me that I would walk in and according to 1 Peter chapter 2 that I would declare the excellencies of him who brought me out of darkness and issued me into his wonderful light. 
That's my purpose, and it's good. So why do I buy this lie? I think Pastor Kirk's language from last week is helpful here. That when we have too small a vision of God, we set our ambitions on things that are far too small. One of my favorite movies is the Best Picture winner from 1982. Anyone know? Yes, Chariots of Fire. I heard it whispering in the second row. Chariots of Fire. In Chariots of Fire, we follow the story of two Olympic sprinters from Great Britain. One's name is Harold Abrahams and the other Eric Little. These two were teammates, they were rivals, but they could not have had more different motivations for why they ran. Harold Abrahams, when he was confiding in one of his friends, said this, I'm forever in pursuit, and I don't know what I'm chasing. I'll raise my eyes and look down that corridor four feet wide with 10 lonely seconds to justify my existence. But will I? For Harold Abrahams, being a runner was his whole world, his entire reason for living. And so should he fail, should someone else win the race that he had trained his entire life to win, what would become of him? What purpose would he still have? In a different scene in the movie, Eric Little is talking with his sister, and she is questioning his participation in the Olympics because the Lord had called him before to be a missionary in China. And as a a side note, he does become a missionary in China. He serves in China in the 30s and 40s as a missionary during World War II, ends up serving many in a Japanese prison camp, and dies there in 1945. But in this moment, in this conversation with his sister, he says to her, I know God has made me for a purpose, but God also made me fast. And when I run, I feel his pleasure. The contrast is obvious and it poses a question to me and to you. Would you rather work to justify your existence or work to enjoy the pleasure of your creator? Why do you work? When I trust my work as my purpose, whatever I attain leaves me unfulfilled, longing for more. And so friends, these are the three ways I think for now we can think about work becoming an idol in the realm of security, identity, and purpose. Or if we could rephrase those as questions, security, whose am I? Identity, who am I? And purpose, why am I here? I'm not sure you can find deeper questions to ask as a human being than those three. Whose am I? Who am I? Why am I here? And if I know the Lord as my provider, as the one who will be there for me and who calls me to himself for all eternity, I know whose I am. If I know the Lord as the Father who has called me a son or a daughter in his kingdom, no longer a slave to fear, but a child of God, I know who I am. And if I know that the Lord has made me in his image, has endowed me with his spirit, so that by his spirit I may proclaim his goodness, I know why I'm here. 
whose I am, who I am, why I'm here. These three, the Lord and the Lord alone can provide an answer. And yet it is to these three that sometimes we give work the privilege of giving us the answer. So back to our question. Do I worship God through my work? Or do I worship work as my God? As I was preparing for this week, I was convicted over and over and over again of the various ways and the various times that I have looked to work and said, work, give me an answer. What's my security? Work, give me an answer. Who am I? Work, give me an answer. Why am I doing this? And over and again, I have experienced the sleepless nights that the Lord says in Psalm 127 don't have to be. And so what do I do? Because I know that exchanging God for work in these things is a bad trade. And I think you do too. But we keep making them. We keep making them anyway. So do I. So why do we do this? But better, how? How can we resist doing it any longer? How does the Lord equip us to resist making an idol of our work? He gives us rest. And rest is resistance. I have long misunderstood rest in the relation to my work. For most of my life, I have treated rest as the reward I get to enjoy when I get my work done. But that's not what rest is. This week, I've been convicted by God's word of a completely different reality, that rest is not the reward I earn for the work I get done. Rest is a gift I receive because of the work that God has done. Psalm 127 says, unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Unless the Lord washes over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. It is in vain that you rise up early and go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil, for the Lord gives to his beloved sleep. Notice that the Lord does not give his beloved sleep because they finished their work. He just gives them sleep. And the beloved do not enjoy their sleep because their work is done. They rest knowing that the Lord is the one who works on their behalf while they have stopped working. He provides the security for the city. He is the one, not the watchman, that enables them to sleep. He is the one who calls them the beloved. Their identity is secure whether or not the work on the house or in the city is accomplished. And he is the one who provides their purpose because without him, all that they do is in vain. It is God's work on their behalf that gives them rest, not their work. Too long I have labored under the delusion that I need to earn my way to rest. He gives to his beloved sleep. It is God's gift of rest that will not only be what comes from him and not from our work, but in addition to that, it is his gift of rest that will help us to see him and our work more clearly. So how do we take this on? How do we receive this good gift of rest that God is ready to give? The answer is not new. 
but it will probably sound radical nonetheless. Take a Sabbath. Take a Sabbath. Now, what do I mean by that? I mean plan intentional times of rest. And as a simple framework, you could maybe follow the rule of one. One moment each day, one day each week, one week each year. One moment each day, one day each week, one week each year. Sabbath rest is God's gift to his people of a rhythm of work and rest that resists the flow of the world of hustle around us. It is an invitation for us to trust that God is still working in the moments when we have stopped working. In our current cultural context, it has become the expectation for all of us, from the youngest to the most advanced, to rush from one thing to the next, filling our days with jobs and activities that we hope will fulfill us, but actually we just hope will keep us active and save us from becoming too bored. And so many of these things that we do are good things. But what I hear coming out of my own mouth and out of the mouths of my children and out of the mouths of my neighbors and my friends and my coworkers is, I'm tired. I'm tired. We are desperate for rest. And yet we continue to live according to worldly rhythms of life that are resistant to the very thing we crave. And we're putting our stock in the thing that's making us tired to give us rest. So what if, what if we planned intentional times of rest as a way to resist? Resist the current of this world that is hustling us. What if we kept the Sabbath as a way to express our trust in the Lord that he and not our work is the provider of our security, the father who gives us our identity, and the creator who's called us to great purpose? What would that rest look like? Keeping the Sabbath in the words of a pastor from Oregon, A.J. Swoboda, is, quote, an action of great purpose, and I love this line, one that demands feisty intentionality. If you got some feistiness, this is for you. Sabbath is for you. Sabbath keeping is not simply stopping the work that I normally do, though in our current cultural context, With smartphones and the expectation of constant availability to my work, that might be countercultural in and of itself. But Sabbath is also considering how I rest. What do I do with that time that I intentionally carve out? And so following from different examples in God's word, I have three suggestions for us. First, do things that give life. Sabbath rest is not passive rest. But I think a lot of us stink at resting. We're bad at it. We're bad at it because when we rest, we don't engage in activities that refill us. We engage in activities that suck our life away. Our times of rest end up backfiring and causing more fatigue because instead of engaging in life-giving activities, we anesthetize ourselves with too many substances and too many screens. And then what do we end up with? The same fatigue after, but in a stupor. 
So what do we do instead? Rest is not being found there. Jesus spent his Sabbath serving others, and it got him into a lot of trouble. So for the troublemakers, Sabbath's for you too. (laughs) How could you resist the flow of this world? How can you resist the flow of this world that seeks to keep you working for your own gain? Might you consider planning an intentional time of rest when you seek to do something life-giving for someone else? So number one, do something life-giving. Number two, make time to be grateful. In Philippians chapter four, Paul instructs us, do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, offer your requests to God and the peace of God, which surpasses all knowledge, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Peace follows thanksgiving. Gratitude is the habit that develops contentment. And the number one thing that we are discontent with is our jobs. So in those moments when you are carving out intentional time to rest, receiving that sleep that is yours as the beloved, not because your work is done, but because you are the beloved and he loves you. Use that rest to say thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. Gratitude is a must-have in our Sabbath. Third, in addition to doing something life-giving and making time to be grateful, make time to remember who God is and what he has done. Romans 1 told us that when we make a bad trade, we suppress the truth and that we exchange the truth about God for a lie. The Sabbath was God's gift to his people as a time when they would remember him. In Exodus, they are told to remember that he created all things and then rested. And in Deuteronomy, they are told to remember that he delivered them out of Egypt and therefore they should rest in that deliverance. Remember who he is. Remember what he has done. If sin causes nearsightedness in us, then intentional times of rest are like the gift of LASIK surgery that finally enables us to see clearly again. So as part of your intentional time of rest, include time to remember who he is and what he has done. Take a walk through his creation and marvel. Read his word. Listen to songs that magnify his character. Look at or create artwork that awakens your imagination to wonder at his beauty. Share stories with each other that speak of his goodness. And most of all, most of all, go to Jesus. Go to Jesus. Make time to return to the one who died and rose for you. Go to his cross. Go to his empty grave and be reminded. And wouldn't you know it, this is exactly what he invites us to do. Do you know that one of the best ways we can resist making a bad trade, as I knew with my top's finest refractor Michael Jordan card, is you need to know what you've got you got to know what you've got. And you need to know that what you have is better and more treasured than anything you could get for it. So as we think about the rest that we carve out, let's make sure we go to Jesus, who is our treasure. And there is no greater treasure in heaven or on earth than the Son of God who gave his life for you and for me. There is no one 
who can fulfill us, no one who can provide, no one who can name us, no one who can lead us like Jesus. He is the genuine article. When the U.S. Treasury Department trains people to learn about checking counterfeit money, they teach them what the different counterfeits might look like. But that's not most of their training. Most of their training is they learn what a real $100 bill is. Because once they know how it feels and how it looks and how it smells even, then when they smell or they see or they feel the counterfeit, they know it instantly. They are so well acquainted with what is true that they identify the lie and call it what it is. May we be like that. And so friends, Jesus calls us to exactly this. In Matthew chapter 11, he says, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Jesus does not offer rest to those who finished their work. He offers rest to those who are weary with labor and to those for whom work is a heavy burden. And in exchange for that labor and heavy burden, Jesus offers rest and a yoke that is easy and a burden that is light. And please don't miss this. Please don't miss what's going on in this invitation because what Jesus is doing is Jesus is making a trade. Jesus is making an exchange. And to our eyes, this is a bad trade for Jesus because he is giving us his rest in exchange for our labor and our heavy burden. Every other religion and every other philosophy in this world will tell you that this is a foolish exchange that no deity would ever accept or initiate. They will tell you that it is by your work that you attain your security and your identity and your purpose. But Jesus does not say that. He says, come to me in all of your weariness, with all of your unfinished work, and all of the burdens that you've been asking that work to carry, and I will give you rest. This is exactly the kind of generous and irrational exchange that only Jesus can initiate and deliver on. And that's because it's only Jesus who is gentle and lowly of heart, It's only Jesus who came to call sinners and not the righteous. It's only Jesus who took on human flesh so that he could get close enough to touch the unclean and make them clean. It's only Jesus who demonstrated his love in this way, that while we were still sinners, that's when he died for us. Jesus exchanged his life for ours, the perfect son of God, for sinful children of men. And with his last breath, when the work he had come to do from heaven to perform had reached its consummation, when the wrath of God had been poured out upon him as he hung on that cross, with that last breath, he said in triumph, it is finished. But then he rested. Because he wasn't defeated. Jesus' rest in the tomb was yet another perfect act of obedience. Because as he rested on that Saturday, even in death, he kept the Sabbath. His rest 
was a defiant stance against the forces of evil that wanted to declare victory on that Friday because he had died. But Jesus' burial rest was not a defeat. It was the perfect expression of trust that even while he was resting in death, his father was still working. Friday's good because Sunday's coming. And on that Sunday morning, on that resurrection Sunday, when he rose from the dead in newness of life, Jesus made the darkness tremble and he silenced every fear because his resurrection proves that he can deliver on the promise of rest to every weary, heavy laden, and laboring soul. Jesus' offer of rest is not dependent upon anything that you or I have done, can do, or will do. His offer of rest is entirely because of what he has done. And so friends, on this Sabbath day, as we prepare to come to this table, where we here do this in remembrance of me, as you come to the table, find rest. See in the bread and in the wine, see his body broken for you, his blood shed for you, and remember that in that moment he provided. In that moment he called you his child. In that moment he fulfilled his purpose and gave you yours. As you come to the table today, remember that the eternal son of God laid down his life for you, which means that you have rest that will never end. Come and find rest here. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> so friends, would you please join me? Let's close in prayer. All right. Heavenly Father, it, it's so humbling and I don't know, it blows my mind to consider that you would be willing that you would be willing to give us rest even when we don't deserve it. You would be willing to give us rest when we're still working, when all that we try to accomplish and all that we try to do to prove ourselves is left undone. God, that's exactly when Jesus came and that's exactly why Jesus came, to meet us in our burdens. And so God, help us, help us to say yes to the gift of rest. Help us as we come to this table to see you clearly as our good and gracious God who has given us all things. Thank you, Lord. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.